Broadcasting from the Prairie Sportsman Studios. Presented by OnX. Know where you stand with OnX. <clears throat> We're not just a radio show anymore. Heck yeah. This is Sporting Journal Radio. Man, watching that new open gets me excited, Dan. Hunting season is here. I'm jacked about it. Fall fit. Are you more excited, Dan, to, to fish this fall or hunt this fall, you think? I don't know. <clears throat> Excuse me. I go back and forth on it because I love fishing so much. And I love hunting so much, too. But fishing's fun. I, I don't I don't know. I like both. Hunting's not? Well, it is. But so is fishing. And fishing's so good in the fall. Right. Hunting... It's hunting can be a lot of work to be honest. It's, it's <laughs> kind of so nice to fishing. No, you back a boat in and you drop a rod down. How's your you boat go. doing right now? You can walk on shore and <laughs> away you go. Yeah. It's even easier than not using a boat. So it's pros and cons. You try to do both. I'm gonna have to quit for the fall. You're gonna have to find somebody else to produce. Mm, I'm and, quitting too. So okay, well, see you later. I guess we're done with the show. So we'll much see you in January. So much to do in the fall, and it is a tough tough struggle between hunting and fishing. And Dan, the, the early teal season is opening up here September 3rd, along with uh, early goose in, in Minnesota. Uh, the early teal season goes uh, September 3rd through September 7th. It's back. This is year two now of this early teal season. I believe it's a three-year plan right now. Um, first time it's been it's been happening in Minnesota since like the 60s or whatever it was. We did it last year. What did you think? Are you are you going to do it? I mean, we're going to be in Saskatchewan while this is going on, so we we don't have the option really this year. But if you were here in Minnesota, would you would you do it? I'd go goose hunt or dove hunt, and if the opportunity to shoot teal while we'll say goose hunting presented itself, I would shoot the teal. Would I really want to go set duck decoys just to go shoot teal on a pond? Probably not. It's not worth it for me. It's it's tricky up here. We've got a, enough wood ducks and mallards, and you can say all you want about, oh, know your ducks. I know my ducks. You know your ducks. The guys we hunt with know our ducks really well, probably better than anyone else I've hunted with. We still second-guessed ourselves last yeah. year. We we let a lot of ducks fly by because we just weren't sure. We didn't, didn't want to be that guy shooting a wood duck or a mallard. And So I don't know. It's it's not worth to me to stress myself out over that to go shoot blue wing or green wing teal. I don't like them that much. I'd rather wait and shoot mallards or shoot geese because we've got a lot of local geese around and they're kind of dumb right now. So I want to take advantage of that while you can. Yeah, I took the words right out of my mouth. I would goose hunt, and then if a teal lands in the decoys, I would shoot, I would shoot it. But I, I and I, you know, some people are probably listening or watching this, saying, "Hey, you pushed for the early teal season pretty hard. You wrote about it in Outdoor News, and you're right, I did, but not the early teal season that we have now. What I wanted to do was put days on the front of the duck season so that we could extend the duck season are 60 days later, maybe into early December, at least for the central and southern zone, so we'd have a chance at some late season mallards. I would much rather sit in a field and shoot late season mallards than go wade through you know, the water when it's 90 degrees in early September to try to, ah, gosh, is that a teal? And, and we do know our ducks, and I'll tell you what, and maybe we were being extra cautious, but even when you think you know your ducks, when you are out there and you've got, you know, five different species of brown ducks flying around 
and you're trying to pick out just the small ones, basically, you know, you're pretty much IDing them by size or sound or something like that. You use, you're extra cautious about it now because you can't shoot a lot of the other species. So it, uh, it definitely was, was trickier than I was expecting it to be. And honestly, I could care less if we, if we're going to do five days at the beginning of September for early teal, I could, I would much rather go shoot doves or, uh, the season or does nothing for us. Yeah. It, it added <clears throat> five days, I guess, for guys to go shoot ducks if you want. So great. Another hunting opportunity. Yeah. I don't want to trash that, but right. for our ultimate goal, it did literally nothing for us. And I know guys up north don't want to do it. You know, we talk about the wood ducks being our problem duck down in the southern part of the state. They don't want to do it because they're dealing with ringbills. Try yeah. a brown ringbill versus a brown teal. It's a small, fast flying duck. Good luck. Yeah. They don't want to do it. And I like teal. I like eating them, but uh, I don't need five days at the beginning of September to do it. I, I, I want to get rid of our or length. I want to lengthen our split maybe in the central zone so we can hunt later. I mean, I know and people fish will, more people. Yeah. People will argue with me about this, but every year at the beginning of October, at the end of September, after the opener, the local ducks are bounced around a little bit from getting shot at. It's hot and it's uh, it's usually a lull anyway until we get more birds pushing down. And it, and it depends on different parts of the state. You know, where, where we're at isn't exactly the same for that. I know the North hates the split. Uh, the South, the South, a lot of guys like the two-week split, but a lot of guys didn't, so they eliminate. I, I don't even know why we have a split between the Central and South it's Zone the now. Same zone. It's, it's, it's the same zone. It's literally the same date. For now, it's all the same. Yeah. But I think they, they're keeping it just in case they want to change and it again. And it should change again. <clears throat> so anyway, it, it's here. We're there. It's the early goose season as well. That opened up September 3rd or opens up September 3rd, goes through September 18th. Uh, for the teal season, by the way, you can shoot six combined teal, blue blue wings, green wings, cinnamons. You're not really going to be able to yeah. tell the cinnamons and the blue wings apart. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, Canada geese, you can shoot five Canada's or specks or, or brands during the early season. And I had to include that because a couple of brands got shot. Congrats, Thor. Yeah. Again. Nice job. Uh, you can shoot 20 snows during the early goose season as well. Shooting hours during the early teal season. Remember, this was a big, everybody was trying to figure this out last year during the early teal season. Shooting hours don't start until sunrise during that the first five days. During the early teal season, you can't hunt until sunrise to help identify those ducks. Otherwise, it is a half hour before until sunset. And uh, comment below, by the way, if you're going to hunt early teal or what you think of the early teal season here in Minnesota. Should we continue to do it? Should we, do we still, do people want it here in Minnesota? Is it what you expected? Comment below and let us know uh, what you think the early teal season in Minnesota, or if you're in one of the surrounding states listening to this, what's your situation? Like I know in North Dakota, they got the bonus teal situation. Uh, let us know what you think of how teal are being managed up here in uh, in our neck of the woods. Regular duck season opens up November, uh, November, September 24th in Minnesota and North Dakota for residents of North Dakota. In Minnesota, it goes to November 22nd for the North Zone. We get a five-day split in the Central and Southern Zone. Uh, that'll be October 2nd. It'll close and reopen October 8th and go through November 27th. So we get almost the end of November this year, which isn't bad. Um, I'd like to see a little bit later. And then December 28th for Canada geese in Minnesota. Uh, Non-residents can hunt North Dakota on October 1st. Uh, not much has changed for limits, I don't think. Six ducks, four mallards, two hens, uh, two redheads, two cans, three woodies, one pintail, two black ducks, 
And then uh, the Bluebill limit still is uh, kind of a tough one. Only one scop from opening day until October 13th, and then he can shoot two per day the rest of the season. And for Dan, uh, five mergansers a day. Perfect. I can't wait. Gosh, you know, you talk about, <laughs> do I really want to go walleye fishing? I want to go shoot birds. I'm going back up north. That's my new plan. Yeah. I was going to go to North Dakota and try to shoot mallards. Now I just ah. new plan. I'm going back to where I went to college yeah, and we're on leech-like mergansers. Yeah, sawbills. Uh, two of those can be hooded mergansers, by the way. Your possession limit, of course, three times a daily limit. Get out there and waterfall hunt. It's best. I love it. All right, we got a great show uh, this week, in fact. Um, John Devney is going to be joining us to talk about uh, duck numbers and what the waterfowl season will be like. Uh, also, we have Garrett Sveri's back talking about fish in the brule. And then Joe Henry's going to join us to talk about bird hunting up around Lake of the Woods, but not waterfowl. Upland bird hunting. We'll talk about the three different species of grouse all coming up. Dan, have we talked about who this week's show is brought to us by yet? Uh, <laughs> I don't think we did. Why don't you hit it? I'll hit it real quick here. We'll just run through it here. Uh, we've got a Haybell Heights Campground and Resort. Book a trip to, for this fall. You can do a cast and blast at Devil's Lake. Learn okay. more at haybellheights.com. Ottertail Lakes Country. Find your inner otter at ottertaillakescountry.com. Lake of the Woods Tourism. Lake of the Woods is the walleye capital. Plan a trip for this fall. Maybe do a cast and blast up there or think ice fishing at uh, lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Camp Grayling. Catch the Grand Slam at Camp Grayling in Saskatchewan. Lake Trout Pike. Arctic Grayling and Walleye. Onyx, know where you stand with Onyx. That's our favorite hunting tool in the fall. Mid-migration outfitters, come hunt waterfall with us out of heated 10-man pits and comfortable blinds. Learn more info at midmigrationoutfitters.com. And Prairie Sportsman, watch episodes anytime at the Prairie Sportsman YouTube channel or check your TV guide for air times. What's going to be really awkward is if we already did that. I don't think we did. It, but we might have, and then we'll yeah. have it in there twice. We, so you're welcome, sponsors. We, we really like you. our sponsors. So we're going to Saskatchewan, and we were wondering about the avian flu uh, ban on travel. Uh, import ban of bringing birds back from Canada and John Devney from Delta Waterfall has the answers for us and we're going to ask him about them when we come back. Devil's Lake is legendary and this summer has been legendary for walleyes. Don't miss out. Call Haybale Heights Campground and Resort today to book one of their modern cabins on East Bay. The cabins are furnished with a full bathroom, kitchen, and all the amenities like high-speed internet and are clean following CDC guidelines. Staying at Haybale Heights gives you full access to a private boat launch, fish cleaning station, and beach area. Learn more at haybaleheights.com. That's haybaleheights.com. Plan your trip to legendary Devil's Lake today. All right, well, we got some numbers from the Minnesota DNR regarding waterfowl and the breeding numbers. And there's a couple of things to take away from this uh, because the numbers overall, they're saying are down this year. The percentages are down this year, but they're comparing it to 2019. So what are the waterfowl numbers like out there? North Dakota put out some numbers this year that were very promising. Let's break it all down with John Devney from Delta Waterfowl right now here on the show. John, how you doing? Good. Good to be on with you again. It's getting to be that time of year. Best time of year. It's almost here. I'm excited. <laughs> and it sounds like you got a lot to be excited for over in North Dakota. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's pretty amazing. North Dakota Game and Fish sort of made mention of this when they released their survey results, Brett, is, you know, we went from being pretty wet. Um, you know, remember that big blizzard we had put us in really good shape at least early in 2020 for the 2020 breeding season, um, you know, had good water conditions. Of course, we didn't fly a survey in 2020 because of COVID, but North Dakota Game and Fish continued uh, their long-running survey. So we knew we were wet in 2020. 
but shortly after the survey happened, we got really dry here. We got really dry lots of places. And then we know that uh, last year was incredibly dry. And then, you know, on the strength of better than average precipitation over the winter, maybe more normal precipitation over the course of the winter, and then, you know, some timely spring rains. And then, of course, that August blizzard really set wetland conditions up. And and I think North Dakota Game and Fish said that there was a 616% increase in year-over-year wetland conditions. I wow. I wish my stock market portfolio performance was up 616 <laughs> Did you say August blizzard, by the way? I know it gets uh, April, cold. April, did April. I say August blizzard? I didn't mean August <laughs> blizzard. Although, listen, I live in North Dakota. Maybe it's happened. You should uh, never April, know. April blizzard. That's funny. Well, uh so we in in here in Minnesota, uh, we didn't we don't have any numbers from last year to compare it to, but we've been so dry over here, at least in the southern half of the state. But this spring, our water was way up. Like we, the river was flooding. Uh, a lot of seasonal wetlands were 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 real full. So we were worried that actually some nests were getting washed out. So I think we lost some some nesting early and then everything really dried up. So I, I don't know what to what to expect here this fall. Well, I will tell you that, yeah, we lose some nests to get flooded. I mean, it certainly happens with canvasbacks and redheads. Although I think when you look at it on the whole, you'd be amazed to know that you might be startled to know that there is never too much water on the prairies. I mean, there's too much water for communities. There's too much water for farmers. But when it comes to breeding ducks, you can't have too much. And every drop of water that, you know, that we can get is a good thing for breeding ducks. Yeah. Well, and I, I actually got to see, uh, I had a blue winged teal nest in the yard this year. And she actually, I don't know if you'd be able to find that video. It's probably too short a notice for Dan to find that video. But she actually, uh, I had some tall grass not far from the house that she built this nest in. And I put a camera next to it and actually got some video of this blueing teal sitting on her nest for uh, for a little while. And then I and then I, I let her rest for a couple of days. I figured I, I had a camera there. So I backed out for a couple of days and just kind of let her be. And when I came back, uh, something had eaten all the eggs and destroyed yeah. the nest. So it was a little, it was a little disappointing. But it was, uh, I'm sure she re-nested somewhere else and uh, hopefully had maybe a smaller clutch, but hopefully had some more little blue well, and teal babies. That's, that's really what happened. So you know, we've talked about it in the past, Brett. You know, when I said there's no such thing as too much water on the prairies, so. We get water in the spring, we get it early enough, ducks distribute into the best landscapes where we really want them to be in the prairies, right? But the second thing, the real benefit we get is that heavy re-nesting effort when females have access to those temporary and seasonal wetlands throughout the breeding period and can re-nest. Um, I bet you there was almost no re-nesting last year. In fact, there are probably females that sat it out entirely last year. So, you know, when you live in the situation that we live in today, where we've got a lot of landscapes with pretty low nest success, these years where we're crazy wet, have incredible re-nesting, turn out to be the boom years. And then the third benefit we get is what we know about duckling survival is duckling survival is highly correlated with wet seasonal wetlands. Because those ducklings, when you got seasonal wetlands that are full of 
full of water, they have incredible amounts of escape cover and they survive and fledge. So that's why we want it wet on the prairies. Get them in the right places, heavy re-nesting effort to overwhelm high predation rates and then high duckling survival. Well, looking at some of these numbers in Minnesota, the breeding population es- estimate for mallards was 231,000. That's right around the long-term average, which is good. It is uh, 19% below the 2019 estimate, but uh, blue-winged teal is, is down a bit. And then the rest of the ducks are just down uh, about 6%. And then in North Dakota, though, there's some numbers I want to get to because mallards were up 58% from last year, the 25th highest count on record, which is good. But John, you got to be excited. The ruddy duck index increased 157%. John. Yeah. I mean, Lord knows <laughs> um, I'm going to be painting a lot of bright blue beaks on decoys. <laughs> with, with little brown ruddy ducks. Dollar ducks. Uh, that's great. But uh, sho- shovelers and pintails, 108% increase in pintails over there. That's got to get people excited. Well, I mean, again, I think what's going to be really interesting is to look at the full distribution of the birds, right? Because, you know, the, the challenge we've had the last couple of years is we, you know, we've had, thanks to the good work of the North Dakota game and fish and their staff, they've been diligent about collecting data, but they've been the only ones. So we're looking at all this population data sort of in isolation. And I, you know, I would expect that, you know, think about it. We went from really dry to really wet in a real hurry I'm sure this was an attractive place for pintails because we had lots of temporary and seasonal wetlands, the very habitat they like. Pintail populations in the U.S. prairies and the eastern Dakotas have done really pretty well over the last 15 years. So we're building more and more of a tradition with pintail breeding in North Dakota over time. And this year we had the table set in terms of abundant temporary and seasonal wetlands being brimful of water. I'm excited. I've, I've really in the last week or so, I don't know if it's because game fair is taking place or what, or game, you know, recently took place, but I, I don't know if that's kind of my official benchmark for when, when I get excited about fall or what, but I'm, I've been seeing some combines. There's been a couple of fields. Yeah. There's a silage field that was out early and uh, an oats field that came out early. And I've been seeing doves all over the place. There's a little bit of crispness in the air. In the, there have been a night couple now. of those mornings that made you feel like, okay, now we're getting closer, right? Yeah. I'm so excited. And, we're, of course, uh, Dan and I are heading up to Saskatchewan. We're going to be spending some time up there, John. And uh, what do you think – what what impact do you think this um, avian influenza, there's a ban on bringing birds back from Saskatchewan? What kind of impact do you think that might have Actually, from Canada, as of say. right now – yeah, as of right now, there shouldn't be a ban, Brett because um, Canada's been tracking these sort of priority control zones pretty, pretty closely. Um, and the, the original guidance that we received in early July was that they would prohibit the import of birds from those high control zones. Right now, there's not a single one in Saskatchewan. Oh, okay, there's not good. A single one in Manitoba, and there's, not a, and there's one in Alberta. So the now, interestingly enough, Ontario and Quebec seem to be where there's the most problems right now. Hmm. Um, so we're hoping to get clarity. In the, the challenge is you've got all these agencies that have overlapping responsibilities, right? So you've got USDA APHIS, who is responsible for the importation 
of stuff from outside the country, they've issued this guidance. In the, in, but the guidance links to what the Canadian government is specifying as these priority control zones. But then you have Customs and Border agents having to interpret all that. And so <laughs> yeah. hopefully what we will see in the coming weeks before guys start going up September 1st is to get some clarity. I think we've got clarity based on the USDA guidance, but how is that interpreted by an individual custom and border agent? But wait a minute. As of right now, Saskatchewan and Manitoba look pretty good. So you wait a minute. You're telling me that government is confusing about government something? Is confusing, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, government that's occasionally confusing. I'm glad I'm not the only one because we were trying to look that up the other day and we couldn't figure it out. And we were right. looking at these priority zones and the map we looked at, there was spots in Alberta, there were spots in Saskatchewan. So I was like, is that, is that a priority zone? Are we, do, are we banned from bringing birds back? I couldn't figure it out. And I didn't spend a lot of time on it, of course, but uh, it was, it was definitely a, a confusing trip onto the internet for me. Yep. No, hopefully there's going to be some more clarity. And it's been interesting because we issued a news story with the guidance from USDA. Our, our team did a really nice job compiling it and provided the link to the Canadian priority control zones. And it's in the, in the, I'll give the Canadian government credit. That's a very adaptive process. Yeah, There are places sure. coming on. There are places going out. And I think when I first looked at it in early July, I think there were a half dozen or so sites in Saskatchewan. I may be understating or overstating it a little bit, and a couple in Manitoba. And as of this morning, when I looked, there were no sites in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Okay, yeah, it looks like, uh, 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 scroll down just a little, Ontario, Quebec, and one in Alberta. Okay, that's what you were saying, one in Alberta right there. Okay, yep. interesting. Yeah, well, that's good. That's good news. I know uh, avian influenza is uh, something that needs to be on all of our uh, everybody's radar, of course, and it's nothing you ever want to hear about. But uh, it seems like it's it's around every year. It just seems to be a little bit more prevalent right now. What do you think is what 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 do you think is causing it to just spike? It seems like it's there's a little bit more of it going on right now. What do you think is causing that? Well, I think we had a pretty unique situation this spring, right? And you think about you think about the species that were hardest hit by it, it was snow geese, right? Yeah. And well, look what happened this spring. We had a late spring. And in a late spring, what do snow geese do? Well, they migrate back, especially the adults, because they want to get back to the their breeding colonies early. Because um, that's we know that when they nest early, they have the highest reproductive potential. And so they're in a hurry to get back. And we slowed them down. Uh, this year in a big way, which means you've got a lot of geese highly congregated in places like around ice holes and frozen lakes. And, you know, you set up a great sort of incubator for the, that disease spreading. Now, the interesting thing that I saw is I was up and, you know, I saw clear evidence of it in North Dakota in March, um, just driving around and seeing snow geese, either dead snow geese oh, yeah. or five, six snow geese in places where you shouldn't see them. Um, there were people the watching them. Sorry, there were people watching them drop right out of the air. Yeah. And, but by the time I was in Manitoba in early May doing a little snow goose hunting, I didn't see a single one. Mm, good. So in, in the Canadian wildlife service, 
did some pretty good uh, harvest sampling of those birds to see what was happening sort of in the free flying population. So, I mean, I think this was sort of the perfect storm, right? You jam all those birds in a few little places, probably sets up, you know, probably like having COVID on a small airplane, right? Yeah. You, you <laughs> yeah. get a lot of people sick and a lot of, in a real hurry. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, that that's good news. So do you think, um, did we not have a great snow goose hatch then this year because of that, you think? I, I don't spring? know. I, I mean, I don't think... I don't think that direct mortality is going to be huge in most places. I'm here in places where there were some problems, uh, but, you know, when we get the report, full report from the feds, uh, you know, we'll have a better glimpse of that. I heard some pretty encouraging news about really good production out of some of those colonies. So, mm. um, but, you know, it's all anecdotes till we see the big report from the feds here in the next little bit. If we talked about that colony that's been established over in Alaska, the the new colony that we had, uh, did you see that interview we did with the guy on our show about that? I haven't. It's it's it was pretty interesting. We'll send it to you. But uh, a few months back, or this spring, I suppose, we had a biologist biologist on, and and he they it was uh, because somebody shot us. What somebody shot a goose with. A tarsal band, Dan? Yeah, we shot a tarsal in North Dakota in April or whatever, and so we, uh, how'd that go? We kind of got the data. It was from Alaska, and so we reached out and, and got a hold of the biologist who banded it, and it was, because it was a young bird, it was a, a juvie. Yeah. And so that's kind of raised some some eyebrows why there was already a tarsal band and juvie up there, and they were uh, tracking a new colony that basically has been forming Alaska the last few years, so interesting i shot my first band you know i don't know what it is but i always seem to you know shoot abandoned snow goose or two in the spring but uh on veterans day here a couple of years ago i got sort of aced out of the place i wanted to duck hunt and ended up past shooting snow geese and first i shot an eagle head that was banded and i was surprised to see that one came out of alaska too mm. so it's interesting that those birds are pretty, um, pretty adaptable and see, keep finding a way to win. Yeah. And well, that's exactly right. And that's what we talked to this biologist about because we figured they were birds that were actually moving, moving uh, west that had been part of colonies further east and had moved west for whatever reason. And they were trying to figure out what that reason is because it's kind of a different food source. It's different. Uh, it's a different landscape. Yet they're they're coming from Alaska and migrating down to the Dakota. So it was uh, it was kind of interesting that and they're and it's growing very fast. Of course, a big surprise sn snow right. goose population growing, <laughs> growing, right. growing yeah. really fast. But um uh, I, I'm excited for this fall and I didn't, I wanted to make it to the duck hunters expo this year. I didn't make it down there. How, did you get down there? How did it go? Yeah, we, it was a great turnout. Our staff did an incredible job. I mean, obviously it was the first one we've ever done. So I mm -hmm. think there was a little bit of trepidation and anxiety, but, um, I think everybody that was involved with it was very pleased. The vendors were very pleased. The attendees were very pleased, and we were certainly very pleased as well. So it was a great success, and it turns out Little Rock was a great place to hold it. Well, when you want to talk uh, waterfowl hunting, Arkansas is an is a obvious choice. And putting on an event like that, I can understand there, there being some nervousness about it because that's a pretty big undertaking. 
it was an incredible undertaking. But our staff did an incredible job and lots of hard work from lots of our staff to make sure that thing was a great success. So this can be an annual deal then? Uh, we're waiting to see, but it's being discussed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Would, do you, would, uh, would the plan, do you think, be to have it there again, or would you move it around? Uh, I, I don't know. I think that's still in the deliberation stage, too. Um, you know, if you look at Pheasants Forever's had great success, sort of moving it around a community of cities with coming back to St. Paul, I think every five years. I think, I think that's, that's right. right. Yeah. But I think they've sort of honed in on Omaha and Sioux Falls and can't remember all the other places. But I mean, that's worked very nicely for Pheasants Forever. Um, you know, NWTF has done theirs in Nashville for eternity. Uh, SCI has done theirs in Reno for eternity. So I guess that'll be left as smarter people know what the heck they're doing. <laughs> sure. Well, uh, it's always interesting talking ducks. I know some more numbers are, are coming out and uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about those yet, but I'm sure we will in the future. And, uh, and next time we talk to you, we'll probably be holding uh, birds in our hand, hopefully in a wheat field in Saskatchewan. So, um, John Devney, Delta Waterfowl, as always, appreciate the time today on the show. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a wonderful trip to Saskatchewan. 852 million acres of public land, 147 million private properties, all in the palm of your hand. The number one hunting GPS app just got better. With hundreds of custom map layers, 3D and topographic maps, you can easily scout on the road or at home before you go. And now you can get important weather details, CWD detection, and even know what crops have been planted where. Get the most trusted hunting GPS app ever made. Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx. Well, we're in that time of year. Do you go hunting? Do you go fishing? Do you do both? I always try to do both if I can as much as possible. And you get, if you can go to a place like Lake of the Woods, you have a lot of opportunities for casting and blasting. And Joe Henry from Lake of the Woods Tourism is going to tell us about some of that right now. Joe, how you doing? Hey, Brett, I think you're the man when it's talking about casting and blasting. I enjoy it. I, You know, I'm one of those guys, I, I try to do it all when I go someplace, every opportunity I can, because you never know when you're going to get back, even though I try to go back to places like Lake of the Woods as often as possible. But while I'm there, I don't like to miss out on opportunities. And uh, Lake of the Woods, obviously fall fishing is great up there. Rainy River's great. Lake is good. The angle is great. Uh, there's some waterfall opportunities. But what I think is kind of neat is you have – essentially three different grouse species up there around Lake of the Woods. And that's kind of an underrepresented under, I shouldn't say underrepresented, underrepresented, but uh, uh, an overlooked opportunity at Lake of the Woods, maybe. It is, you know, so we, so our, our three species of grouse, of course, we have the rough grouse, which is the most common and we have uh, spruce grouse, which are the darker birds. And then of course we have uh, the sharp tailed grouse. So we have all three. And, you know, I, I think the other part of that is, um, we have literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres of forest up there, and the vast majority of it is public land that you can hunt. Now, I can tell you, growing up in central Minnesota, when there's public hunting opportunities, you'd get out there, and there was a lot of traffic, which made it really hard to bird hunt. Um, when you go to Lake of the Woods, not only do you have a lot of woods to hunt, but there's really a lot of access to it. There's dirt roads going through them. There's ATV trails. There's dedicated walking trails in some areas where a joint effort between the Rough Grouse Society and the Minnesota DNR, 
they actually have walking trails, Brett, where um, when you when you pull up to a good grouse forest, there'll be a sign there showing you an uh, an aerial view of the forest, and then they have a like a red marker showing you where the trail is. And in almost all cases, there's nice ample parking, and then that trail. When you start walking that trail, you make one great big loop, and you always finish back uh, at your vehicles again, which really makes it nice because you never walk on the same piece of land twice. Just so many good opportunities up there. And I got to tell you, man, when, when I first started, you know, driving around up there in the fall around the dirt roads and stuff, to see three, four grouse running a ditch here and a couple grouse running, you know, running uh, through the woods here. I mean, I, I I was just like a kid in a candy store. You didn't have that happen in central Minnesota, I can tell you that. Well, the seasons are going to open up here soon. September 17th is when the rough and spruce grouse seasons open and uh, the sharpie grouse, sharpie, sharptail grouse, sharpies, they open up in the northwest zone on September 17th as well. That only goes to November 30. Uh, rough and spruce grouse go through January 1st. That east central zone for sharpies closed once again this year. But I will say they, they had an increase in the population numbers for uh, sharp-tailed grouse this year in Minnesota, in, including that east central zone, which is good news. And we're on the downward cycle for rough grouse, Joe, but they had good numbers of rough grouse uh, that the DNR reported this year too. So hunting could be good this year up there. It, it could be really good. Yeah. And you know what? It's funny that, you know, whenever people come up to Lake of the Woods and, and grouse hunt, so many times they tell me, I'll tell you what, Joe, we, uh, we, 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 it helped us to learn the area a little bit, but I'll tell you what, we saw a lot of birds. We're, we're happy. And it's not just, uh, um, the rough grouse, but I mean, uh, three species of grouse. And of course you got your woodcock as well. There's a, you a good oh, yeah. population of woodcock up there. So it, it is, it's, it's really neat hunting up there. It's beautiful. You don't have so much traffic. You know, we're not that cosmopolitan grouse area that gets really a lot of traffic. We're kind of under the radar screen because of our good walleye fishing. And uh, the other thing I'll say too, is that, you know, for people that come up, you know, to be able to get some, some decently priced lodging in the fall is very, very doable. I mean, uh, you know, some of the resorts you stay at, the, the vast majority of them have dog-friendly lodging, so welcome to bring your hunting dogs. It's just really a neat opportunity. I'm going to say something kind of controversial, because I grew up hunting grouse, rough grouse in northwest Minnesota, but I'm shot in Minnesota, which is arguably the grouse capital, the rough grouse capital. You grew up hunting northwest Wisconsin. Yeah, sorry, what did I say? Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah, grew up hunting northwest Wisconsin, sorry, where I shot grouse. Uh Minnesota, arguably the the grouse capital, rough grouse capital. I've shot more sharp tails in Minnesota than I've shot rough grouse. I've shot more prairie. What? Chi- I've shot more prairie chickens in Minnesota, and I've shot more woodcock in Minnesota than rough grouse. But come on. Uh, I know, and, and I mean, I I chase pheasants mostly. I like seeing my birds when they flush, and so I don't chase rough grouse very often. But uh, but I I enjoy it. And I one of these days, Joe, I'm still going to get up there to Lake of the Woods, and I want to do a grand slam of grouse. I think this would be fun to do for prairie sportsmen is go out there and try to shoot a rough grouse, a spruce grouse and a Sharpie, you know, either all in a day or all within a, you know, a couple of days, maybe take a three day trip and try to do one of, you know, one of each, each day. I think that would be a a kind of a fun Minnesota hunting challenge. We've had, we've had people do it. In fact, I've had media up from, uh, Oh, you know, like Kansas and Missouri and, and areas like that, that have come up and done exactly that. And, uh, it's been a trip of a lifetime for them, but these are these are your really avid, you know, upland bird hunters type of thing, and it's something they've always wanted to do, like a bucket list thing. And yeah. and uh, and of course, it's it's funny because when they come up, you know, I always ask them. You know, they're media, so we're we're working with them, and 
And, uh, hey, do you want to get some walleye fishing while you're up? You know, it's really good walleye fishing. And, ah, you know, not really interested. <laughs> we ended up, uh, Alice ended up setting up maybe a half-day charter trip for him. Guess what? If they ever come back future years, what do they request to do? They want to do some fishing. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You yes. know, I, yeah, yeah. Well, you got to go fishing for walleyes when you're at Lake of the Woods, of course. <laughs> you have to. Uh, we should mention, too, that Woodcock opens a week later than everything else. So Woodcock is September 24th through November 7th when uh, all the other uh, grouse open up September 17th. And uh, Joe, if people want to come up there and, and do a trip at Lake of the Woods, do a cast and blast and, uh, and hunt grouse while they're up there, what, where should they go for more information? You know what, Brett? We got, a, we got a lot of information about uh, Beltrami Island State Forest and other places you can hunt up there. Hey, simply check out our website. That's lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Northern Minnesota's Walleye Factory is a year-round world-class fishing destination. The perfect getaway this summer is just a short drive to Lake of the Woods. Fish Big Traverse Bay, the Rainy River, or visit the unique Northwest Angle. To catch big fish, you have to go where the big fish are. Plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. That's lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Did you know there are more than 1,000 lakes in Ottertail County? Yep, and I'm gonna fish as many as I can. I'm an outdoorsy otter. Nothing beats a full day of fishing for me. The lakes of Ottertail County give me plenty of options to lower my boat and snag the perfect catch. Not an outdoorsy otter? No problem. Ottertail County has something for everyone. You just need to find your inner otter. To find your inner otter, go to ottertaillakescountry.com. Well, this time of year, you have so many options of things to do in the outdoors. And what's nice is you can go to one area and do them all, and that's Ottertail Lakes Country. And to tell us more about some of those opportunities, Garrett Sphere joins us from Slab Seeker Fishing. Garrett, how you doing? Hey, doing good. How are you guys? So a lot of people will go to Ottertail County for, you know, deer hunting in the fall, obviously, is really good. Waterfowl hunting is good. Uh, musky fishing, walleye fishing. But maybe, and I don't want to say it's overlooked when you talk about panfish paradise, but you have people travel there for crappies in the fall, it sounds like. Fall crappie fishing is absolutely fantastic. You know, uh, we'll start to see around the middle of September, those fish tend to kind of push out over those basins, those deeper areas. Anytime you have a hole where you're seeing, you know, 30 to 50 feet of water, you're going to see some suspended crappies in those. And um, it's a real easy thing to hunt over that deep water with your electronics and kind of get on top of those roaming schools. You can kind of follow them around with your bow mount throughout the day and vertical jig for them. Uh, I even know a lot of people that bring their ice fishing gear out and they flop a Vexlar over the side of the boat, <laughs> let the transducer float there and jig with their ice rods over the side when they get on top of them. Um, I mean, it's really I mean, a fun time of year to, to go vertical jig uh, crappies. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of people really want uh, uh, cold water crappies. The fillets are just nice and firm, and uh, it's going to be that time of year. I can't believe it. It's here. I'm so excited for fall, Garrett. And I know Love I know it. you do a lot of traveling and fishing kind of around the region in the fall, don't you? Yeah, I really like to go chase migratory fish, uh, you know, for, in the Great Lakes, big browns, big big salmon, big steelhead. And so I, I love the fall from a recreational standpoint. That's my favorite time of the year. I, I, uh, I spent some time at Lake Michigan chasing, uh, chasing, you know, migratory steelhead, big brown trout. Um, obviously Lake Superior where I grew up, I'd love to get back up there. I even do, you know, some guiding up there the whole month of October. I'll guide on the, the Brule River in the fall and then the, the North Shore Rivers in Minnesota on the, in the spring. 
but I try to get out and do a bunch of fun fishing too. In fact, uh, I did. I just got back from the Brule River and I was out uh, night fishing browns, migratory Lake Superior brown trout with my nephew, uh, with big mouse mouse flies. It was it was pretty fun. We didn't do real well, um, but we we had a great time. So tell we me, had how- some, we had some fish that were chasing. We just didn't get any hooked. Um, you know, we're out there wading the upper brule at night in these big pools and throwing a big mouse fly on the surface. And you, you know, you kind of chug these along and, you know, they can see this water displacement that's coming in like a mouse or a frog on the surface. And I had a big fish erupt in front of me. And the key is when you get a big fish that misses the bay, just to keep it moving. If you stop it, they don't, I don't think they really know what's there at all. They're kind of sensing this when their lateral line, because it's so dark, they, they can't see very well either. And uh, I did the right thing. I had this big fish blow up on the surface and, you know, just water everywhere and a big commotion. And I just kept slowly stripping the fly and slowly stripping the fly. And he, he found it and got up to it one more time, missed it again, a whole big eruption and, um, you know, big splash. And I kept it moving. And at that point, I'm right on my rod tip. So I had no alternative other than to cast again. But that was a you know, a 25 inch plus into a mid 30 inch fish, you know, a big fish. And you're doing this uh, like, in, in, like in the middle of the night or like 10, 10 PM when it's pitch black or what, what time of night is this? You know, Mac is far better at it than I am. He goes every night. Uh, I'm a daytime guy. I'm, I'm a daytime fisherman, but he's really got this down to a science and they don't like the moon out at all. And so you really kind of plan your trip based on the moon rise. And like when we were out, we had, you know, nice dark night until about midnight. And uh, so we fished from, you know, dark at nine o'clock until uh, until about 1230. And then that moon got up bright like daytime. You didn't need your headlamp anymore. And um, from his experience, those fish just don't bite very well once that moon gets up bright. We also did some daytime brookie fishing when I was up there. And that that's a lot of fun. We, we caught a ton of fish uh you know, on dry flies, on streamers, on small MEP spinners and Vibrex spinners. Um, the brookie fishing was, was fantastic. The, you know, the big giant browns at night can be tricky, but uh, it's pretty rewarding if you succeed. Yeah, like that, That you know, I, I spend more time, I don't spend as much time with stream trout, particularly in the summer. Uh, like I don't fly fish too much. I could see myself getting into it a little bit, but I've been using flies like streamers for big fish, particularly up in Saskatchewan for big pike and, uh, and even lake trout. And I'm, I'm completely hooked on it, right? Like that's, it's such an effective that way. Much to better f- than that. Yeah. yeah, man. And, and I could see it for big Browns, you know, when you start talking about 30 plus inch fish, that's a nice fish. And then when you can combine that type of effectiveness with a fly and a topwater bait, gosh, that sounds like a good time, man. It is pretty fun. You know, and I'm, I'm kind of with you. I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of like real delicate, you know, fishing tiny midge flies that, you know, and stuff like that for, for small trout, but something about going there out there and we're throwing mice that are, you know, four, five inches long with the tail. I mean, so you're throwing big flies, trying to make a lot of commotion on the surface when you strip them in, you know, it's, it's pretty exciting. It's, it's pretty much as neat as, as fly fishing gets in my opinion. Yeah. And doing it in, in the dark like that, that'd be pretty wild. Well, yeah, uh, and you know, his kind of program and it was good for me even because I haven't went and, you know, throwing mice at night for, it's been 
maybe two years since I've done this at all. And so he got me out there about a half hour before it was pitch black and, uh, and just had me cast a little bit, which is kind of nice. And you can kind of get dialed in and make sure your loops are tight behind you. So in the dark, you don't have the, you don't have the advantage of looking back to see if you have a tight loop <laughs> before you, before you go with your forward pull. You know, and so, uh, you know, you can kind of get that dialed in and so that it's all just muscle memory once you're out there, you know, you're just like, all right. Oh and, gosh. Uh, you know, I can't... to get that mouth as far as we're throwing it, we're using double hauls too. So you're pulling on your fly line in the back like a rubber band and then letting it go behind you. And then once you get your rod in front of you, you're pulling back on it again and then letting it fly forward. And so to get the distance you need, you need to make what they call double hauls. And, uh, yeah, that's something that it's nice to work on for, you know, to have a half hour to get kind of adjusted before it's pitch black. Yeah. In the daylight, if there's one tree around, I will be in it, let alone trying to do it <laughs> along a stream in the dark. I'd be a nightmare. I'd be, I'd be done. I'd be done in five minutes. I'd say, nope, let me know when you guys are done. I'll be in the, I'll be in the truck. The other thing you can do that kind of helps with this too is uh, we run a really a short leader. So I was running about two and a half feet of 15 pound fluorocarbon off of my fly line is all. And then that mouse pattern, because you know, they're not real spooky at night. So you definitely don't want to go out there and use a seven and a half foot or even a five foot leader, because you know, what could happen is you're, you're trying to do this from muscle memory in the dark and, you could loop that mollus around your leader when you're forcing it out there. Hmm. But if you use, you know, something real short and stout, um, you know, it, it's a pretty bail safe operation. You know, the trees behind you, you do have to kind of be a little observant on. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as looping that around, if you can go just real short, and they're not lion shy back there at night. And the worst scenario is when you hook a big fish like that and you break it off, um, you know, the, the hits are so aggressive on the surface that they hit it with so much shock that you want to use, you know, we always have jokingly said, you want to use as heavy of tippet material as you can fit through the eye of the mouse, honestly. Hmm. So I was running straight 15 pound fluorocarbon, but you could even go heavier than that, honestly. Uh, and it wouldn't hurt you a bit. And then what and do they you don't really see your fly line coming as dark as it is either. So if you put two and a half or two feet or three feet of, you know, a leader on there that's that's plenty long and that's really hard to tangle that up when it's that short and what are you using for a rod you know i've got a 10 foot uh sage seven weight that uh, it was beautiful to throw you know both mac and my other uh, my cousin were out there and they both really loved to throw that sage i had you know that's a that's a pretty expensive fly rod but it's uh it's it's really a beautiful rod to throw um, Max, you know, doesn't have expensive gear at all. He really likes to throw and he's out there every night catching tons of these big fish. And he just has some, uh, you know, a nine to nine and a half foot, uh, Reddington, uh, you know, uh, seven weights, you know, a seven weights really kind of a nice rod back there or an eight, you know, a lot of the fish you're going to catch are going to be, you know, you're just your average cookie cutter migratory brown and the brule is going to be about 26 inches long. Hmm. That's about the average size. That's a nice You know, and the big ones will go 33. So you, you're pretty under gun with a, a small stream trail rod, like a five or a six wave, you know, a hmm. seven or an eight is really, really ideal. And the other thing is to handle throwing a mouse like that. Um, you know, the, the line that I ran this past weekend was a, uh, an indicator nymphing line for throwing strike indicators, you know, a big bobber essentially. 
And so those turn over a heavy indicator with weight really easily. So they'll also cast a big, heavy, wet mouse fly a long ways. You know, you don't want to use a fly line that's not really meant to throw a big fly or you're going to struggle to kind of punch those out there that way too. Mm-hmm. So you know, having having a line that'll throw that helps a lot too. And also having a rod. You know, the mice we were fishing were way too big to throw with a stream troll rod as well. You almost need a seven weight to to throw that big of a mouse, especially when they get some water in there. You know, the, the one mouse I was throwing was made out of deer hair. And those deer hair mice are great until you get them wet. And so with those, we're using a lot of dry fly floating to kind of keep that hair dry. And then also, you know, trying to kind of dry them out in the air with your back casting a little before you throw it so it stays up on the surface. Hmm. And it seems like lately Max got into a lot more foam mice where he's tying them with foam heads and foam ears. And that foam is nicer than deer hair in the sense that you don't have to worry if it's floating or not. It's always going to float. Mm. Where, you know, deer hair is kind of the traditional mouse material, and that deer hair, if it gets wet, it, it, and you can feel it, it, it gets to be like you're casting a wet sock after a while. And you're like, I need to really get some floating on here and dry this fly out a little. Well, one of these years I'll get over there to the Brule. I had fun with you last time. We were up at uh, up along the North Shore. I'd like to do that again one of these years. And then, uh, which people can do that. They can join you. You'll take them on a guided trip. Are you doing, uh, you got any more Otter Tail Lakes Country uh, guiding opportunities this year? Or are you starting to focus up on the North Shore? Um, you know, I've, I, I've always done uh, panfish in Otter Tail County in the summer and then in the fall and the spring. I, I do a month of steelhead fishing in the spring and a month in the fall. So, uh, you know, our steelhead calendar gets a little jammed up, but I got Mac helping me now, too, taking a quite a few mm-hmm. trips. So uh, if you're interested in a steelhead trip, we'll definitely get you out in the water. All right. Well, how do people reach you? I've got a website. It's slabseekerfishing.com. Otherwise, if you search for Slab Seeker Fishing on Facebook, we've got a great Facebook page. We try to update with what we've been doing. I used to be far better at updating it every day um, after every trip, but uh, I I still make sure I update it once a week so you can kind of see what's biting, what we're doing, if that seems of interest. Sure. All right, Slab Seeker Fishing, Garrett Sphere, thanks for the time today on the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Sporting Journal Radio is a division of Macaba LLC. If you've got a question, comment, or story idea for us, send us an email. Go to sportingjournalradio.com. While you're there, you can learn how to advertise on the show and visit our store for hats, hoodies, coffee mugs, and more. Go to sportingjournalradio.com.